So I'm uh, pleased to introduce Nicole Orzakowski, who is the Section Chief of Rheumatology and an Assistant Professor at Medicine, um, to welcome today's speaker. Good morning, everyone. It is uh, truly my privilege and pleasure to introduce today's Medical Grand Round speaker, Dr. Chester Otis. Dr. Otis is a professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. He completed his medical degrees, internship, and his internal medicine residency at Pennsylvania State University, where he also served as chief medical resident. He moved to the University of Pittsburgh for rheumatology fellowship training and has served in various leadership roles there um, and at the VA in Pittsburgh, including the chief of the rheumatology service at the VA the Rheumatology Fellowship Program Director at the University of Pittsburgh for 10 years from 2001 through 2011. And currently, he's the Director of the Myositis Center at the University of Pittsburgh and has served in that role since 2010. Dr. Otis has spent his career advancing the science in the field of inflammatory myopathies and teaching others about these diseases. His research has touched on multiple different aspects of the inflammatory myopathies, including pathogenesis, autoantibody associations, clinical features, especially interstitial lung disease, which we'll hear a little bit about today, and treatment. He was the PI for an NIH-funded multi-center clinical trial of rituximab for the treatment of myositis, the largest trial ever completed for this disease. You won't be surprised to hear that he's a prolific writer with over 170 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He travels extensively, both nationally and internationally, where he's invited to share his expertise with others around the world. Dr. Otis has had many impressive accomplishments over the span of his career, many more than I can highlight in this five-minute introduction. But there's one thing that stood out to me when I reviewed his CV to prepare this introduction. Dr. Otis is consistently dedicated to medical education at all levels and has been so throughout his entire career. From being a chief resident at the start of his career to his current roles as co-director for two of the medical student courses at the University of Pittsburgh, the first year medical student immunology and health and disease course, and the second year medical student uh, skin and musculoskeletal disease course. He also continues to serve as an associate program director for their fellowship. His commitment to excellence in medical education as well as research and patient care is inspiring, and we are honored that you can join us today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Otis. Wow, that's way too much. I still take out the garbage when I go home. Okay, well, it's really a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to see some of the people that I know. William had a beer and a sandwich with last night, so that was good. Um, so if I slur my speech, you can blame him. So what I'm going to talk about today is um, myopathy, and it's more than just muscle-related disease. Uh, these are my disclosures, which really aren't that relevant to what I'm going to talk about. So it was <clears throat> nice to talk to Nicole, and she's a really pleasure to, to see um, young people interested in, in uh, the rheumatic diseases and having specialty interests, and hers is in scleroderma, uh, which will come up a couple times during this talk. But what I wanted to get across uh, in this talk was to talk about different muscle uh, and relevant areas of muscle weakness that are that are important to the internist, and to talk about drug-induced myopathic syndromes, particularly the statins, uh, which are um, uh, it's kind of a hot area in, in our in our diseases. 
but also to recognize that uh, muscle disease, myositis, that's been what I've dedicated my career to, is, is way more than just muscle disease. And we're going to talk about uh, what keeps me up at night, and that is interstitial lung disease uh, when it's uh, affected, when it affects my patients. So just a couple things uh, from, a, from an introductory perspective. When you think about a patient with, with muscle disease uh, in the office, whether you're an internist or, or whatever, uh, you know, whatever you're doing in rheumatology as well, you got, I mean, I know it's simple stuff, but you got to dig into the history uh, of these patients. And it's important from a temporal perspective. How did their weakness develop? How did their symptoms unfold? What, you know, what it, you know, fellows work with me, you know, really, not that hard to work with anymore. A little bit tough in the beginning. But you better lay out exactly the chronology of the case because that's what's important. So you're not, you have to know if things are rapid versus insidious. You have to know what type of weakness it is. Is it proximal? Is it distal? I'm not going to go over uh, everything here, but, you know, there are functional things that are important from a, uh, from a um, strength perspective. And then finally, you know, you got to kind of distinguish whether things are more neurologic or whether they're rheumatologic. Um, so focal tends to be more neurologic. Not always, you know, uh, whereas, uh, you know, asymmetry is more neurologic. And you oftentimes have to take a close look at um, uh, how these things evolve. So the other things that are important from the standpoint of history are the associated symptoms. And we know that we deal with systemic diseases in, uh, in, in, in myositis and in rheumatology. So when a patient shows up with weakness and they have joint pain or rash or swallowing problems, that's important. But we also have to remember that other concomitant medical problems such as thyroid disease can also complicate the assessment of these patients. And one thing that I would point out when is, is when you take the family history in a patient with muscle weakness, if somebody, if in that family there is the same pattern of weakness, in other words, uh, proximal, you know, scapular, whatever it is, that points towards genetic. If you get into the history, and, um, and, and these patients have, I'm not sure if this is, is this, is, can you see it up there? I guess you can. And, and if you get a history of lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, an ant with scleroderma or MS, that autoimmune diathesis, that autoimmune thread, is oftentimes indicative of an autoimmune problem for that patient's muscle weakness. So when you get a consistent pattern of symptoms, genetic, neurologic, varying connective tissue diseases, because everybody's not going to have lupus, lupus, lupus. It's going to be RA there, lupus and a cousin, you know, um, MS and an aunt or something like that. And then the other thing to, to, to key on, and then we're going to talk about, is medication use. So this is the first case. And this uh, hopefully is known to, to the um, fellows in rheumatology and even the faculty. And this, these are all real cases. I, I, I didn't, uh, these aren't contrived. This is a 65-year-old guy that I saw with the insidious onset of muscle weakness. He had an elevated CK, two, four, five, six times normal. He had a myopathic EMG. He had a muscle biopsy that was interpreted as polymyositis. That is, it had endomesial inflammation. And he was treated for polymyositis for several years. Um, he got prednisone, he got steroids, he got methotrexate, he got steroids and methotrexate, combination of things. Nothing made him better. Nothing made this guy better. And then he shows up and he says, yeah, now I'm starting to fall. So hopefully people, you know, the rheumatologists in this room know what this is. This would be his muscle biopsy. And the muscle biopsy, uh, this is a cross-section of muscle. You can see that there's these red cells here that's a trichrome stain. It shows muscle inflammation, that endomesial inflammation 
but it also shows something over here. And that thing over there are called vacuoles. So this guy has inclusion body myositis. And the intern will say, okay, well, I don't really care about inclusion body myositis. But you should. Because inclusion body myositis is the most common myopathy in middle-aged and elderly people. So it's out there. And what do we normally say is going on with these people? It's getting old. Okay, but a lot of times it's not just getting old. So these, this entity is more common than dermatomyositis, more common than polymyositis, and it is the most common. And we ought to consider it in, in rheumatology because rheumatologists still make this mistake. When you're confronted with a refractory patient with, quote, polymyositis, it doesn't get any better. And there's another interesting thing to this disease, and that is it's a male predominant. So what do we know about all of the other rheumatic diseases? They're female predominant. Okay. It's insidious. It sneaks up on them. You can, you know, if you go in and you see a Joe one positive patient, they know when their disease started. You talk about these patients, and they, you know, they sit there and go, well, I don't know. Just quite sort of snuck up on me. So when you see these middle-aged to elderly people with distal asymmetric weakness, now if they have a foot drop, that's all. To me, that's in this setting is IBM till proven otherwise. It's not a vasculitis, and we always obviously know what foot drops and vasculitis. And then they get this characteristic pattern of, of muscle atrophy. And if you look at it, this is the um, these are you know patients. Actually, the one on the left is taken from the literature, the, uh, the 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 man's leg there, and then the woman on the right. This is this is the atrophy, the degree of atrophy that these patients can develop. It's marked form atrophy. And in fact, if you take a closer look at the guy on the, uh, on, the, on the slide here, this right here is the femur. This is a normal cross-section on the lower right of what a patient should, see, should have in their quadriceps. You can see kind of like the muscle um, is, is circular. This is the degree of atrophy that you see in this particular disease. It's a triangle as opposed to a circle, because this is the femur, and this is all supposed to be filled in up here with quadriceps. And that's a type of atrophy that you see in this particular disease. So don't forget it. Even more commonly is, it, is this case. And, and I, I saw another one. Actually, I saw a couple in the past week, one with a fellow. This is a 52-year-old African-American guy who showed up in our office, and he was referred for a CK that was 862. And one was 1,000, and another was 900, and another one was 750. And he had dyslipidemia and hypertension. He had a family history that was nothing. Social history, nothing. Former athlete. Took thiazide and tenolol for his blood pressure. And he had a really a negative review of systems. Um, his exam, uh, not only was he 5 slash 5, but I could probably hang on his arms. And uh, he says, you trying to break my strength? And he just kind of laughed. I said, yeah, well, I'm going to give it a shot anyway. But, uh, but I, couldn't, I couldn't break this guy, okay? And, and, I, and I asked him, I said, you, you know, you've had these enzymes. I, I think I had a year and a half worth of tests uh, of the CK. You know, he says, you know, so I said, yeah, anybody ever tell you that your liver tests were off? He says, gosh, I can't believe you asked it. He goes, when I, when I went into the Army, my early 20s, they said my liver tests were off, and they, they wanted to do a liver biopsy, and I told him I, I wouldn't let him do a liver biopsy because I'm fine. And uh, he just had a workup, had it on, and, and, um, and, and had no problem with his liver. But that told me what? That told me that his elevated liver tests, and he had, a, he had an STOT and STPT that were, I don't know, they were 82 and 76. They were two times, three times normal. But you always have to ask these patients, 
Because if I knew that his liver tests were elevated back then, I'll bet you it was his elk fossil was rock solid normal, but his transaminases were elevated. And they were, quote, liver tests, but they're not liver tests, they're muscle tests. And that's what was elevated probably back in his 20s because he had absolutely no evidence of anything and reaction was, was quite healthy. So this is the issue. And, 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 and what we see as rheumatologists and what internists absolutely see is elevation of these muscle enzymes, elevated CK. You never know what to do with it. But the question is, what's an abnormal CK? And, and the abnormal CK is really driven by you know, uh, the past clinical laboratory, uh, huge assessments of patients where the reference range is felt to be the central 95% observation in Caucasians. Okay, that's generally what has driven laboratory tests. And if you assume a Gaussian distribution and a bell-shaped curve, which you do, you, know, you end up with a normal CK being, you know, it might vary. It might be 300, 200, 180, whatever it is, but it's in that range. And if you use those parameters for the CK elevation, 10 to 20% of males, 3 to 5% of females are going to have hyper-CKemia. And that's an important point. Um, because of a lot of issues that come up down the road. Now, just look at the just look at the the mean here. So this is white male, white female, black male, black female, and and just look at the mean here, and you'll see nicely that African American males greater than African American females, greater than white males, greater than white females have this CK discrepancy, and it's important to know that for a lot of reasons. Because those patients do well many times. And I'm not talking about a CK that's 500, then 1,000, then 5,000. I'm talking about a CK that's 700, 1,000, 1,100, 800, and you have that pattern over a year, over whatever time you're following that patient. But what we found, and this is all evidence-based, literature-driven, is that in those patients, the prognosis is benign. This was a study of 55 patients followed for a meet of seven and a half years. The CK normalized in 12. It decreased in 24. Most of those patients remained asymptomatic. And this isn't just five or six K. This is a nice, reasonable cohort of 55 patients. And in 78% of them, though, they had persistent hyper-CKemia. But the CK tended to drop over time. As you can see here, if it's in this range, if you look at the level at first and the level one follow-up. And here it's not as clear, but down here it tends to drop. But the point is, it sometimes remains elevated. So that's the question then is, what do you do? You see these elevated muscle enzymes many times in the absence of any muscle disease. And I've already convinced you, uh, convinced you of the first bullet there, hopefully, where you see that racial uh, variation in the serum CK. And many healthy asymptomatic blacks have higher CK levels than whites or Hispanics can also be related to exercise. So when you see that patient, you want to say, okay, don't exercise for 24 hours, go get your CK checked and let's see what it looks like. That's another thing that you can do. But you're still going to be left with that subset of patients that has idiopathic hyper-CKemia. And I didn't make up that term, actually. That's in the literature. Idiopathic hyper-CKemia. And what do you do? Nothing. In the beginning of my career, I would do EMGs and, you know, sometimes I even got muscle biopsies because, you know, a level of insecurity that you have, you know, when, you're, when you don't see these patients. But for the most part, you don't need to do anything if you follow these. If you have a history of that CK 
being in that range. And if you do a good examination and do the history and whatever, and if you extend, and, and you don't need to go on and get an EMG and a muscle biopsy in these patients, and you can tell them, look, <clears throat> you've been stable. Things have been good. We know who you are. We know what your numbers look like. This is what I tell them. If you get weak, you come back. If you develop other things, you come back. If I see or if your internist sees your CK, you know, escalating significantly, you, that's a reason for reevaluation. But you don't have to go all, you don't have to jump all over these patients with this degree of hyper-CKemia uh, as you see them uh, and, and as you see them initially uh, uh, in your practice. Well, let me move on now uh, with, with those couple cases out of the way to, to, to myositis. Uh, and, and what is myositis? So I'm going to call it myositis. It, it's, a, it's a mouthful. Idiopathic inflammatory myopathy is probably the most common designation in the literature. But the point is that this is an autoimmune subset, autoimmune disease, you know, scleroderma, lupus, rheumatoid. And what it's characterized is, uh, what characterizes it is heterogeneity. Okay, these are autoimmune syndromes. They don't know, we don't know what caused them. We all go over the genetic, environmental combination. You know, we use that for all of our diseases. But they're characterized by chronic muscle weakness and strided muscle inflammation. And they're rare. These are unusual diseases. Um, I'm not going to just repeat there the incidence and the prevalence, but we do have an interesting part of, of myositis, and that is there is a bimodal. Uh, incidence of this, because kids can get juvenile dermatomyositis, and then you can have a midlife peak or an, an adult peak, and actually occurs in, in, in malignancy, as I'll just touch on later. But again, this is a predominantly a disease, not predominantly, but uh, shaded towards females, like all of the other autoimmune diseases that we see. And African-American women are the most commonly affected demographic subset. This is, you know, the, the, some of the older rheumatologists in the room, you know, know this classification. It's changed a bit over the years, and I'm going to, and I'm going to expand on it. But for the most part, this is adult PM, adult DM, juvenile that I told you about. And then there's this interesting cancer associated myositis, which we've done work on, but I, I'm not going to talk much about today. I can answer questions later on. But like a lot of our diseases in, in rheumatology, it's an overlap. And sometimes myositis occurs in overlap with, you know, uh, scleroderma or, or even lupus or sometimes even rheumatoid arthritis. And then I talked to you briefly about IBM. This is old criteria that we have. There's newer criteria out. I just put this old criteria in because it kind of kind of unifies it into a look at these patients based on what I told you before on, on, on how you take the history and how they present. They are symmetrically weak in the, in, you know. Weakness predominates over pain in these patients. They don't have, you know, hand weakness except if it's IBM. It's pretty much can't get out of a chair, can't do my hair, can't get stuff out of the cupboard of the closet, can't step up on a curb, can't walk up steps. It's symmetrical. A lot of times they have elevated muscle enzymes. The rheumatologists in this room know that many patients with dermato may not have an elevated uh, CK. They have a myopathic EMG. That's about all I'm going to say about EMG. They have a, and then they have a muscle biopsy that kind of looks like an inflammatory process for the most part. Now, in rheumatology, when somebody's weak and their CK is elevated and they can't get up out of the examination chair and they stick out their hands and they, and, and they look like this, this is not a hard diagnosis to make, okay? You can see here that these patients have... This patient has some erythema over the knuckles. Sometimes it spares the interphalangeal area. Sometimes these uh, erythematous papules will be on the knees. Sometimes they'll be much more prominent. And this is Gottron 
papules, okay? This is the rash that you shouldn't miss. It's not hard to see, and sometimes <coughs> it tends to look on the elbows a little bit like what? Psoriasis. And I've seen patients that, that uh, had a patient refer to me for psoriasis with increasing <clears throat> excuse me, increasing muscle weakness, and it was dermatomyositis, but it could look just like psoriasis. They could look like a lot of other things, and this is, these are all rashes of dermatomyositis. This is the ones I, I showed you already. This is a patient that had a necrotic finger. I probably saw this patient 25 years ago, and when we had a certain, uh, enzyme, or a certain antibody test available, I remembered her, and I went back, and indeed she had what is called the anti-MDA5, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later on. Now, this patient has dermato, not lupus. Why? No nasolabial sparing. Now, why in the world would one autoimmune disease go up to the nose and the other one spare that area? Don't ask me. I get that question. Don't ask me that question. I don't know the answer. Um, and this is heliotrope. This is a, uh, you know, a V-neck sign. This is a shawl sign. So lots of different rashes that we can see in these patients uh, with dermato. So that's not a hard diagnosis to make, really. Tough to treat, but not hard a diagnosis to make. Now, polymyositis is a little bit of a different story. And why is that? Because there's a lot of mimics that we as rheumatologists need to be aware of regarding polymyositis. And I'm obviously not going to go through all of these, but these are all really quite, quite relevant mimics uh, of myositis, from endocrine problems all the way through to drug-induced stuff. Uh, so uh, I'm going to touch on a couple of them that I think are, are relevant. And this is one. And you'd notice I've highlighted four things there. And if you have been paying attention, those four things in a patient with hypothyroidism are kind of interesting when it comes to, 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 to myositis. Well, this is, a, and this is actually reported in the literature. It's been reported. I just picked this article by this uh, 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 author where they reported on the serum CK being elevated. Lots of hypothyroid uh, patients can have very bizarre and different muscle symptoms from, you know, muscle uh, uh, myalgias all the way down to hypertrophy, weakness, cramps, weakness, proximal, symmetric. This, uh, he also reports on the EMG being um, abnormal, uh, being myopathic. Oops, sorry. I'm going the wrong way, aren't I? Let me do this. What did I do? There we go. Okay, so the EMGB and myopathic, and then at sometimes these hypothyroid patients even had inflammation. So those four highlighted areas are the four criteria for polymyositis in a patient that does not have polymyositis. They have hypothyroidism. So it can fool you. So you always have to worry about thyroid disease, uh, either in the patient with myopathy or when you see an elevated CK, I remember an old endocrinologist that told me when I was in training, he said, well, the, the CK used to be the poor man's TSH a long time ago because sometimes the TSH, or the, sometimes the, the CK is, uh, is, is kind of elevated, concordant uh, with the um, uh, TSH. So it's, it's an interesting point with hypothyroid myopathy, but the other thing that's a big mimic of polymyositis are drugs. And the most common drug is a statin. So just a couple, a couple minutes on statins. 
despite what a lot of the literature says, they're generally well tolerated. Now, and I'll come back to that later on, but, but what's important about statins is that 30, over 30 million Americans in, uh, uh, take statins. And the, spec, uh, the spectrum of toxicity is very broad from a muscle perspective. It can be life-threatening rhabdomyolysis to simple myalgias, and we see that many times in practice. But it's a fear. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a real you know, fear out there among patients when they go on statins because of what they've heard, what they read on the Internet, that their muscle is really going to be adversely affected in, affected in a significant way. So it leads to 5 to 10% of patients, maybe even more, and if you look at some studies, that either refuse it or stop it. The first time it's get a muscle symptom, they're off, and they stay off, and I, and I hear that many times. But if you actually look at it, um, it, it does affect 9 to 20% of statin users, you know, these myalgias. And if you look, and, and when you looked at us, when, when it was looked at us, a fairly small cross-sectional study of a thousand patients in the primary care setting, only one and a half fold increased risk of muscle complaints in statin users versus non-statin users. And there actually have been similar results in other studies. So it's not crazy increased in patients in fairly large cohorts. But there are other things that patients do or take that actually can predict myopathic problems in statin users. And, and, and one of them is the concurrent medications. If they're older, if they do have hypothyroidism, if they do have a higher BMI, if they have hepatic dysfunction, those have, in retrospective studies, and in, even in some prospective studies, have been predictors of muscle-related problems in patients that are statin users. So let me just go, and this is not evidence-based. This, this was my strategy, because I, I, I saw a lot of patients on, on, you know, on statins, and, and, I, and I would get referral for muscle-related problems. So let's start off at the top. You're on a statin, okay? You have muscle symptoms and or your CK goes up. I don't know, your CK's up. It's 500, and you're taking a statin. You get the, we get the consult from, you know, in rheumatology, what do I do? Well, the first thing you stop the statin. And many times, the symptoms would normalize, okay? The CK would normalize, the, the, the aches and the pains would go away. In that instance, you don't work them up. You, maybe you go on a lower dose. Maybe you try a different statin, okay? That's kind of easy on the left side of the, uh, uh, the algorithm there. Sometimes, though, you stop the statin, and the persistent symptoms would kind of just hang around, or the CK elevation would hang around. In those cases, I think you have to look at thyroid disease, you have to look at other concomitant therapy, I think you have to look at the whole picture, because sometimes that explains it. Well, that's, that's kind of easy right there. But this is what I was seeing, you know, uh, I don't know, let's just go back to the late 90s and around 2000, I would see a lot of these patients where the CK wouldn't go away. And, uh, or sometimes I even saw the CK really high, and patients were quite weak. And this and this bothered me because I, I thought we were missing something. So this was a case, and I want you to pay attention to the timeline here, okay? And this is another real case, 67-year-old lady with uh, those medical problems. In July of 2004, she gets put on a torvastatin by her family doctor. Now look at the time. Four years later, she didn't get weak she, right away. Four years later, she gets lower extremity weakness. And... A year later, she can't walk up steps, and she can't lift her arms like she could, and she loves to make cookies. And she was, it was just harder for her to get stuff out of the closet and the cupboard and stuff like that. 
And then in June, she stops it. Why? She stopped because her daughter went on the Internet and said, you know, I think it might be that statin. Um, and, but she, she doesn't get any better. She's off of it completely. No statin, nothing else. And then she shows up, uh, and then she tells her doctor um, uh, in, the, in the summer of 2009, and he says, you're just getting old. He goes, I don't think anything's going on here. I can't, I can't find much. But she, she was weak, and she told him that. So in September, she goes back. She says, I, 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 you know, something's wrong. He says, okay, I'll check a muscle enzyme. And it comes back 6473, and he says, I, I think that's a mistake. And so she waited a week and came back 9375. So she did two things. She fired that doctor, um, and, and then she got another opinion. And she actually saw a rheumatologist, and her ANA was 320. That ends up being nothing. But something's going on in this lady, okay? And she gets admitted to the hospital because uh, her daughter freaks out, and she gets a muscle biopsy, and it shows necrosis, myonecrosis. No inflammation. Now, remember I told you earlier that myositis is characterized by inflammation, lymphocytic inflammation of the tissue. Invades the muscle, surrounds the muscle cells. But not this. This is not her biopsy. It could have been. And what you see here, if you look at it, is you don't see much inflammation, but you see necrosis, necrosis, necrosis. So this is myonecrosis and was reported, or it's shown in, a, in an article in, in 2015. So this is a little different from, from what we were seeing in autoimmune muscle disease. So she gets treated with prednisone, last bullet, um, uh, and her CK and her weakness improve. She gets better, okay? And notice the timeline again. So she, <coughs> she, then, she was seen by one of our fellows in, the, in practice, former fellow, and she gets sent to me in, the March, of, in March of 2010, first UPMC visit. Her CK is back up to 5,800. Nothing else. No family history of anything. No rash, Raynaud, inflammatory joint, all muscle, okay? And she's weak. I mean, this is weak. You know, you, she can't get up out of a chair. She's pushing off. She can't hold her arms up very well, and I can break her quite easily. So I said, you know, and, and she tells me, this is, this is that statin. And she's been off of it for how long? Probably two years now, okay? And she doesn't want to go on prednisone, she, so she says, figure something out here. I said, okay, thank you. Um, uh, so this is, now look at the date here. So then, right around this time, 2010, um, this entity termed immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy associated with statins. Uh, this is reported by Small Community Hospital in Boston, Harvard. Yeah. Actually, I know the guy, so I can say that. There's a neurologist. There's a neurology publication, Muscle and Nerve. And uh, they reported proximal weakness during or after statin use, elevated CK, persistent weakness, and an elevated CK despite stopping the statin. But these patients got better with immune-suppressive drugs. And the muscle biopsy showed necrotizing myopathy with no significant inflammation. I said, this is what I've been, why couldn't I have reported on 25 patients, because that's what they had, 25 patients from two centers. Not a case report. This is a pretty good 25-patient case series. 24 patients required immunosuppressive drugs, 15 relapsed. So what this is acting like, this is acting like inflammatory, you know, autoimmune inflammatory muscle disease. Biopsy, you know, no, no necrosis, uh, or necrosis, but no inflammation. So the lack of improvement following the stoppage of the drug, the need for immune suppression, da-da-da-da-da, all suggested immune-mediated, autoimmune statin myopathy. A few months later, out of Hopkins, they identified, 
And, and the, these, they knew what was going on, but, so, but both the group from Harvard had actually, and I know both groups, real, real good groups in terms of myopathy, they added a little twist to it. They found an autoantibody in their patients that had a similar clinical pattern. And what they found was that 16 out of their 38 patients that had necrotizing myopathy had this doublet. This is an admiral autoantibody noted on what's called immunoprecipitation. So, and, and what they found in those patients uh, was a, a high statin exposure, but not 100% statin exposure. But as you were older, 83% plus of those patients had exposure to statins. And they all responded to immunosuppressive therapy and many relapsed. Same exact thing as it was reported in the neurology group uh, from Harvard. Well, so what's the antigen uh, in this? You know, we all, in, in rheumatology, we always want to know what the antigen is. It's an antibody against whatever. So uh, I'm going to cut to the chase here. Andy Mammon, who did great work, and he's now at the NIH, he looked at this and he says, okay, this is a 100, anti-100, 200, uh, what, what's, what, hang, what looks like that in terms of molecular weight? And indeed, he ended up saying, okay, I'm going to look at HMGCR. We all know what that is. That, that's, what, that's how statins work. They lower cholesterol by inhibiting uh, HMGCR. It's interesting that it's upregulated in patients. The HMGCR expression is upregulated in statin users. So he chose that because it's a 97 kilodalton molecular weight. He said, I'm going to look at, see if this is the antigen. Bottom line is, it was identified as the autoantigen. So in those patients that have autoimmune necrotizing myopathy, they're making an autoantibody against the, the HMGCR CoA reductase. They're making an antibody against it. And this was again proven. He did an ELISA, and the ELISA showed the, showed the antibody. So let's go back to my patient. This is around the same time. So she's worse now, okay? So they've, you know, all in one year or so, a few years ago, they established this autoimmune nature. And, and I say, well, obviously I know what, you, I know what this is. And I, she's been on prednisone. She's been on Imuran, methotrexate. I add IVIG in May of 2011, and she gets dramatically better. In fact, this 68, 70-year-old uh, woman now normalizes. She's got, a, uh, she's got a normal CK a few months later, 5 over 5 strength. Remember, she had the weakness. I stopped and ran off prednisone, but her CK goes back up again, okay? Test becomes positive. She's, I knew she was going to be. She's HMGCR autoantibody positive. So now... We've got, uh, and then and then Andy reports a couple years ago that IVIG is really the, the drug to use, and we've had, we did a, a similar thing with our cohort. So IVIG, in these patients with this bad actor, necrotizing myopathy, which is really rare, remember, it's not statin-induced myalgias, which is common, or mild CK. This is a necrotizing myopathy that puts patients down, okay? And we know that IVIG is going to work. So let's go back to my strategy here. Um, uh, in this patient, I said, okay, you stop the drug, what's happening? Why doesn't it just go away? Well, it's very interesting that HMGCR is expressed in regenerating muscle. And what does your muscle do? It regenerates, unlike a lot of other organs. So whenever your muscle is injured, initially by the necrotizing myopathy, you get regeneration of muscle, and what does it do? It expresses HMGCR on the membrane. So what does that mean? You've got the, antigen, you've got the autoantigen that's still around. 
So you so, and you and you you don't lose the autoantibody many times. You know when you're when you have lupus, you only use your autoantibody. When you have scleroderma, you don't, you don't lose SCL70 or topo. You still have the antibody. So this explained the fact that if it's still being expressed then the autoimmune process can still occur. So really this was the loop to me that put it together. So now we can finish off our entire um, algorithm here. And if you've got persistent symptoms, like I said earlier, you better start thinking about immune mediated. You better order that antibody. And maybe even it would be a good idea at baseline in some of these statin users to get a CK. That can be controversial, but it's, it's a simple test. We're not talking about a cardiac cath. We're talking about a CK. So now we've got something added to our, to our classification. We've got a uh, necrotizing myopathy, okay, and, and antibody positivity. But as I said before, when we talk about myositis, it's, it's more than just muscle weakness. And heterogeneity is a rule, multiple manifestations, and this is our fourth case. Now, this isn't, just also shouldn't be too hard for the, um, uh, for the rheumatologist because look at what, it, and this, I put the dates in here, and I've had, a hundred of these, but this is just a lady that nicely demonstrates it. So in November, she gets short of breath. In December, she gets polyarthritis and renal phenomena, and she's weak. And in January, she shows up to the family doctor's office again, and she's got acrocinosis of her fingers. She's got a low pulse ox. She's admitted to the hospital. Look at the net. She's a negative ANA. I'll come back to that later on. Her CK is 350. She has an open lung biopsy. It shows NSIP, all right? She gets a CT scan and had infiltrates and ground glass opacities. Rheumatology consultant knows exactly what she has, recommends pulse steroids, good dose, gives her mycophenolate mofetil. So she's got a, a lot of different symptoms here. So what does she have? Any Antibody? She's Joe 1. Again, that's not too hard. Still needs to be educated about it, but this is the anti-synthetase syndrome. She had pretty much all of these, okay? And she also had the one thing that I said keeps us up at night. She had interstitial lung disease. So these are the features. These patients can have a peculiar rash. It's not a dermato rash, but it's, but it's what's called mechanics hands. And I have two mechanics that have Joe 1, and they think it was named after them, but it wasn't. <laughs> but they like to think that. And you can get a deforming arthropathy, radon phenomena, and, of course, uh, interstitial lung disease. That's not, not so hard. Again, really, that case isn't so hard. But the skin rashes can be subtle. The myositis can be non-existent. And the pre presentation can be absolutely, as you well know, lung dominant. So flip it over and say, making the diagnosis of autoimmune interstitial lung disease, because not everyone is going to come in with that classic evolution of polyarthritis and renal phenomena. They're going to come in in a much more subtle fashion. So these are the anti-synthetase antibodies that probably uh, a lot of you don't know about. You probably mo you know, you know about Joe-1, which is the most common one. But there's a whole other group of these anti-synthetase. That means these antibodies are made against aminoacyl tRNA synthetases. Okay, weird. I mean, this is billions of copies in your body, and you're making an antigen against. So we can talk about that later on. But there's a whole bunch of them here. Okay, beyond it. Now they're less common. But the point here is that we have a pretty good cohort uh, at, at Pitt, and and this was our cohort that we looked at a few years ago. You can see that it breaks down into Joe 1 being the most common, but then there's these other ones, PL7 and 12 and the, and the list there. It's a big cohort. 
And what I saw over the years was something different. I saw these patients presenting differently. The Joe one presenting different than the non-Joe one. So we looked at that. And this is a little bit busy. Um, just, just bear with me, though. On the left side is Joe one, okay? On the right side are the non-Joe one. Not all of the other myositis patients, but these are just synthetases. <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of them out there. A lot of them are being missed. So I said, okay, how are these What is the first diagnosis that people come up with for these synthetases? And you can see... Most of the time, on the Joe 1 side, these patients have polymyositis, dermato, maybe an overlap. But on the non-Joe 1, and I said, we've got a longitudinal cohort, and we pay attention to how patients present. So these patients, their initial diagnosis, in fact, in half of them was, you got something, but I don't know what it is, autoimmune, undifferentiated, connective tissue disease. Some did have polymyositis, some did have dermato, and some of them had scleroderma. It's her first diagnosis. So the next question was, and, and, then, and there was a significant difference. So if you look at overall, most of the Joe ones present with myositis, dermato or poly. But only 39% of the other ones, the other antibody subsets present with this. And there's a significant difference, if you look at this, in this presentation population. And then we looked at survival. And survival was worse in the patients that had the non-Joe 1 antisynthetase autoantibodies. Um, and you can see here, this was a significant difference in the survival. And there was a diagnosis delay. So we postulated, and it may, may or not be true, that when patients present classically, like I talked about, the diagnosis delay is short, okay? If they present in a lung-dominant fashion, where you, know, you don't always think about all these other things, it took a year for some of these patients to be diagnosed if you went back to their first symptom. And that was a significant difference. But if you look at the entire cohort of synthetase-positive patients, and again, this wasn't 10, 20, this was 230 patients. They died pulmonary deaths, okay? Half of these patients died of pulmonary fibrosis. And another small set, and I separated pulmonary hypertension because this isn't PAH secondary to fibrosis. This is isolated PAH, okay? Not fibrotic PAH. And even these people that died of other things over here also had lung disease. But 60% of these patients died pulmonary deaths, okay? So that's a significant issue that we have to deal with. So what we learn from that cohort? Well, the one thing, I think we can learn three things. Number one, the non-Joe 1 patients that are out there frequently present with non-myositis symptoms. Maybe they have a rash. Maybe they show up and they're called IPF or they're showed up in the emergency part and they're called double pneumonia. Now, double pneumonia, think autoimmune when you see double pneumonia. That's just my, I don't know, I don't want to piss off the pulmonologist here, but, but when I see double pneumonia, I think something else is going on. IPF, of course, is, is one thing, but you think autoimmune lung disease. And I think that there's a diagnosis of a specific connective tissue disease that can be delayed in those non-Joe 1 patients. So the synthetase-positive patients, whether Joe 1 or non-Joe 1, die pulmonary deaths. So those are the things that we, we need to know about. But there's another twist, and that is this whole concept. Now, you, see, you can see I've expanded this classification now. And now we've got this abiopathic dermatomyositis subset. That means they got a rash, they don't have much lung disease or much muscle disease, okay? Well, this is a fifth case, and it is a fascinating. Again, look at the dates. So in the summer of 2012, she got seen by a, a former fellow who lives in Erie, Pennsylvania, and um, uh, she had a photosensitive rash. 
and by January of the subsequent year, she's got polyarthritis, mild muscle weakness, minimal, minimal muscle really. She had a rash of DM, normal CK. Bottom line is she gets better on low dose prednisone, doing pretty well. But she says, well, I have a former uh, colleague in, in Pittsburgh who wants to see this disease. So she shows up to see me in May. Now, this is May 2013. Her DM rash is a little worse. She feels, she says, yeah, I came here because I heard you're kind of a nice guy and, and, and you have this big registry. So, and she's in healthcare field. She goes, so fellow wanted me to come here. I said, okay, you know, and I listened to her and she's got crackles at the basis. And I say, anything, she's, she's, I'm fine. She goes, in fact, I checked my strength by walking up three or four flights of step because our, our lab's on the third or fourth floor. I said, okay. I said, but do me a favor, get, you know, and I sent a note back to the fellow to get a CT scan and, and, and PFTs. So this is May. Well, in June, she finally got, she felt well, but a month later she gets the CT scan and you can see, because it's not, it's not normal, all right? She's got something going on here, all right? So this is, I see her in May, this is June 6th. I'm giving grand rounds at Cleveland Clinic and I get a call uh, July 1st, and she presents to the local emergency department feeling very short of breath. Her chest x-rays are pacified. And she really wasn't on a lot of immune suppression. This wasn't infection. And one day she's up to 12 liters per minute. And I'm contacted by the rheumatologist who says her rash looks a little different. She's got these things on the palm of her hand now. And I said, I, I know what she has. And remember, this is her June 6th CT. This is her July 2nd. CT, and she's dead in three days. And, and this is devastating. I mean, you know, this, this is like I, when I said what, this is what keeps me up. This, this, this was devastating, okay? And this patient had an antibody called anti-MDA5. And as soon as they sent me the picture of her hands, I said, okay, you're going to think I'm nuts, but pulse her, give her rituximab, and start her on cyclophosphamide. And they said, okay. Um, but then she got transferred to Pitt, and she could not be ventilated. She had, I mean, she, she just had refractory. Uh, hypoxemia and, and was unable to be ventilated and, and died shortly thereafter. So this is another subset called MDA5, and this is you know, these patients can have a vasculopathy uh, um, uh, here, and this is a, an example of what um, uh, a look at what these patients have. So this anti-MDA5 is interesting. It was really reported in the Asian literature a while ago, ten years ago, uh, and, and I, could, I, I list there the different presentations. The target antigen, we always deal with an antigen. What's the autoantigen? The autoantigen is MDA5. What's MDA5? It's a cytoplasmic protein that actually senses viral RNA, induces production of type 1 interferon. So it's, something revs up these cells and, 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 and causes an autoantibody against something that senses viral RNA. It's just fascinating. And this is a survival curve, and we published on this uh, a year ago, a little, little over a year ago. This is the MDA5 negative group of DM. This is the MDA5 positive group. Now, some of them do okay, but they fall off the edge of the cliff, like some of those synthetase positive patients. So this is a whole other subset of patients um, uh, that, that has this lung-dominant disease. So the question then becomes, how do you miss autoimmune lung disease? Well, you fail to recognize the subtle features in some of these patients, and it's tough. You know, they have undifferentiated disease, like I told you about. These antibodies aren't available commercially in a lot of places, okay? So you can't get those non You can get Joe-1, and it's accurate for the most part, but not the non-Joe-1s, and sometimes the MDA-5. And then the third thing is, remember I told you to remember about the negative ANA? So we looked at that. Well, what do you know about the synthetasis? 
Where does protein synthesis, uh, synthesis take place? It takes place in the cytoplasm. These are cytoplasmic autoantigens. This is histidyltyranase synthetase, which targets Joe, what Joe one targets, okay? So we, and, 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 and we, I always said, a negative ANA does not imply autoantibody negativity because that Joe one patient that I presented earlier, RF negative, CCP negative, ANA negative, she just had bad lung disease, and fortunately she had the other things for antisynthetase. But what some of these patients get is cytoplasmic staining that isn't reported by clinical labs. And we looked at that. We looked at our cohort where we had 200 patients that were synthetase positive, and we only found 50% ANA positivity in that group, whereas three-quarters had cytoplasmic staining. So... The final point that I want to make is that many times in the community, they may, you may be reassured and think that it's not autoimmune because all the autoantibodies that you have checked that you have available to you are negative. But you don't get the, you know, really down deep testing on some of these um, uh, results. So still have a little bit, of, a couple of minutes for questions. So I, I think the, the point here is that you have to, uh, avoid, back to the original stuff, you have to avoid labeling every patient with an elevated CK as myositis. That's one thing that I want to emphasize. Statin-associated complaints are common, but that statin-associated necrotizing myopathy is not that common. But when you see a patient on a statin, the CK is off the wall and they're weak, you better think of that particular syndrome. And then you got to watch for autoimmune ILD, even the setting of minimal uh, uh, rheumatic disease uh, manifestations. So, uh, a lot of collaborators at Pitt, uh, people in pulmonary, you can see the names there, and you know, pathologists, and other people outside the institution. So, I think we have a couple minutes for questions, hopefully. All right. <laughs> yes. About two years ago, uh, at the VA, successfully treated a man with uh, statin autoimmune myopathy. The thing that was so interesting to us, and you showed it, is this man had been on um, um, Lipitor yeah. for almost a year before he started to have symptoms. Yeah. And so we, it, it didn't come up as, it, why is he getting because I so that's not uncommon, right? Absolutely. That delay. I mean, this lady was on it for three years before she had weakness. She's a pretty astute lady. She got put on it years ago and didn't get weak till three years later. And so what does that mean? I think what it means is a lot of, the, a lot of these autoimmune diseases, something triggers it. Maybe it was something else that we didn't even know about. Maybe it was some, maybe it was a, some kind of infection that made her body react differently or look at that Lipitor differently. I don't have the answer to it, but that is a very important point. That's why I put that in there, and I'm glad you emphasized that. Because you think, oh, I've been on it for two years. It's not, it's not the Lipitor. Well, I mean, or the, or the statin, and it, and it certainly could be. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed your talk. Could I ask you um, about two treatment issues? Um, your discussion of the patient with inclusion body myositis, you didn't mention treatment, and I was interested to hear what your thoughts were on that. And also, uh, for the necrotizing myopathy where you said how important the IVIG was, how, how do you think it's working? Yeah. Okay, let me answer the first one. That's much easier. 
um, I, I gave a talk at IBM, and I, I remember some people know Ken, o, Ken O'Rourke. Is, he said, uh, he said, give a talk on IBM, and then he says, I want you to talk about treatment, and I kind of chuckled. So I put up a treatment. I put up a blank slide. Um, I, look, I sit across from these patients. It's devastating, you know, and, and, we're, and we struggle with it, but there's no treatment out there that has worked. A lot of people use IVIG, a lot of people use immune suppression. Remember, this is an elderly pop middle-aged elderly population. You've got to be careful anyway. Nothing works for IBM. It's a different disease. It's just a different, it's a degenerative disease. They don't respond. I've, I've never been convinced in the years that I've taken care of that I ever made an IBM patient better. So actually the consensus these days is they don't get treated. You know, and it's, it's tough. It's, you sit across from these people that are, you know, they're in wheelchairs, but they don't get treated. Uh, now, the second question was on um, uh, the necrotizing myopathy and, why, and IVIG. How's it work? You, how, you know, nobody, you know, if you look at IVIG literature, whether it's IVIG for even some of the vasculitides, we don't always know what it works. It may be blocking of epitopes. That, that, that might, that might uh, uh, contribute to how it works, but there's no definitive answer. If you look at the literature, there's no definitive answer on IVIG, but there's a lot of accumulating and emerging data that that really should be your go-to drug in these necrotizing myopathy patients. Sometimes it doesn't work, in which case I'd probably try rituximab, a B-cell depleter, but, but, uh, but that's the, uh, sorry, I can't give you the exact reason why it works, even in any, any of our diseases. Two quick questions. On the IBM issue, there was a report from France uh, last month about rapamycin. Oh, yeah. I don't have any experience with rapamycin. I think I did see that abstract. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a you know, it's an immune suppressive effect. Maybe there's something different about rap. You know, the thing with IBM is it's it's all the way in. Automatogens are, are 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 handled within the cytoplasm, and there's degeneration, autophagy, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe rapamycin has a little bit of a different <coughs> immune suppressive mechanism than the other things. But boy, it's so hard to measure improvement in this disease too. It's slow moving. And, and it, I mean, like, you know, on my side as patients, they're tough to treat, but I can make them better, you know, and I can see that they're stronger. Is the it? second question is, we, we have this pulmonary room clinic, mm -hmm. and, you know, we see a lot of IPF patients, yes. and we screen them with yes. DNAs and yes. DNAs and yes. Yeah. But there are a lot of autoantibodies <laughs> that are not on those panels, oh, yeah. and I was wondering yeah. if you... Uh, go further yeah. and you know, you know, look at all the other synthetases. Yeah. Look at M MDA five yeah. on those yeah. and, you know, and so on. So I, I think you know, I think there's a subset of IPF out there, and a lot of people disagree with me. There's a definitely a subset of IP that's autoimmune, and if you look, and there's we're looking at some. And it's been tough to put these collaborations together, but if you actually look, and Steve Duncan uh, out of UAB uh, as a pulmonologist has, has looked at some of these cohorts. There's antibodies that you can find in these patients with IPF. So that's tough because they're not available commercially. I mean, you're not going to miss a Joe 1 probably, and you're going to screen with ANAs and Joe 1s and stuff like that, and you're probably going to find most of them being negative. But it's that occasional PL7 or PL12, those non-Joe 1 synthetases that don't have classic uh, extra you know, don't have a classic extra pulmonary manifestations, you're going to miss a handful of those. And that, that kind of screws up clinical trials in some instances, you know, because we actually reported uh, last year that myositis-associated UIP, action, and we compared it to IPF, had a better survival. It's not perfect. They die. I understand that. But they act differently 
than IPF. So it's important if you're going to do trials, if you're going to see these patients, to look hard. Two things I would recommend. You know, find a good lab. I think the best lab out there to check antibodies is Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. Ira Targoff runs that lab, um, and that's an, an advertisement for him because it's CLIA certified. The second thing is dig deep. If, if, Raynaud phenomena. Cracking. I mean, I've had pulmonologists refer to me for mechanics hands. I said, you guys are pretty good, you know, <laughs> you know, because no, 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 no other skin, uh, but, but, but cracking of the fingers. So if you, you have to look at them differently, and I think they should be treated more aggressively because IPF, you know, we can all talk about treatment and the antifibrotics, but these patients really need to be looked at differently and treated differently. Bill, William, yeah. So former Secretary of Defense said there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. Yeah. <laughs> and so the question sort of comes up, if you don't have a serology, you have, but you have interstitial lung disease, mm -hmm. we know it can be a potentially lethal disease. Yeah. What's your approach uh, when the patient comes in and you don't have any labs, but you've yeah. got the IPF and uh, you've got the crackles in the lungs? and you've got weakness, or maybe no weakness. Yeah, so that's a tougher question, William, because um, are you saying that they look only like IPF, or you think that there might be a wrinkle? Wrinkle. Yeah, I treat them. I give them a shot. And, and my, you know, it, but, but it depends. Okay, so here's how I look at that. So the, that patient shows up. Not IPF. That patient shows up. You've got different options. We probably, I think the, the, probably the most benign thing is, psycho, uh, is uh, MMF, cell sept. There's a lot of emerging data on cell step and autoimmune lung disease. If they're sicker, then you've got to make a decision. Cyclophosphamide, rituximab. We've published on tacrolimus in synthetase-positive patients. Good data on tacrolimus now. I didn't even, this is not a rheumatology talk. So I, I break it down, William. If they're not so bad, I'll give them cell step, and I'll follow you know, the, the, the physiology, the PFTs. I only get the CT whenever I see a, a clinical change. Number two, if they're sicker, I might give them a three- to six-month course of uh, cyclophosphamide or I might give them tacrolimus, or I might give them rituximab. So it depends on how they present. But yes, if I think that, the, that there's a wrinkle, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt uh, and treat them. And sometimes it, we've had responses that have been surprising to us. Other times they act like IPF. So I think given the hour, uh, if you're willing to answer questions, oh, yeah. we'll, sure. down, we'll take. Thank you very much.